Welcome to CreuVet Collective. We are a community dedicated to connecting and empowering science educators. Today, we're talking about the impact of framing on advancing reforms. If you've ever been in a position where you have to present your findings and argue for some sort of change to be made, you may have felt that your message was unheard or worse, rejected. Through this discussion and future content, we seek to develop how to frame a cause that makes people want to take positive action. Later, we'll tell you about the observation that inspired this discussion, the three questions that we're going to be exploring, and provide some actionable takeaways to check and improve our collective framing. I'm Dr. Rosa. I'm an advocate for science education reform and the founder of QVET Collective. Today, I'm here to ignite another enlightening dialogue with Dr. Adri Corrales. Dr. Corrales, how would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners today? All right, I am Dr. Adri Corrales, and I had to do a lot of thinking about how I wanted to introduce myself and what I would say I am. And I guess the way that I want to introduce myself today is that I am an education researcher and an educator. Uh, I'm also the Director of Community Engagement for the QVET, and uh, I'm just really excited to have some discussions about our field and how to improve it. Me too. Thank you so much for introducing yourself. Let's start with what inspired this discussion to begin with. I like to wake up at 4.30 or 4 every morning and just spend time learning about whatever I want to learn about. Um, I find that it starts my day off right, and I was looking at TED Talks around speaking because I'm trying to improve my oration skills, and I found this TEDx talk by Dr. Nathaniel Kendall Taylor, and they were presenting research about framing and messaging and how it elicits positive or negative support for policies and reform. And what I found really interesting about this is that they were showing this bar chart where when you frame the message in an empathetic sense, meaning like these people are people too and we should support and help them, there was negative support relative to the control. And then when it was surrounding ingenuity, so we hear who are trying to advance this policy are innovative and we can solve any problem. When it was framed like that, there was more positive support. And the most successful approach was to use interdependence where we're all connected. So not so much humanizing the people who are negatively affected by the lack of policy in that space, but more of we're all connected in some way. So if we don't reform this, this is how it's going to come back to influence us. Uh, so it's a little bit more centered on self, which for humans makes sense. But my first thought was, am I framing my work wrong? Am I not supposed to use empathy? Because I lived a lot of the experiences <laughs> that I see in my research for people who are people of color in STEM ed and empathy is just a natural part of that. Not just because I've lived those experiences, but I think anyone who spends time studying about where these inequities come from and how they occur wouldn't 
move away, I hope, would not lack empathy in, in how they deal with them. Even if you didn't research these, these are our students. They're real people. And to not have empathy for them feels counterintuitive to me. And so that just led me on a journey of, I, I want to explore this topic more. I want to understand, am I not supposed to use empathy? Am I, and how does that really relate to tone policing that I've felt in the past? And how does that relate to what I can do as a science education reformer to frame my message so that it has the greatest potential to succeed, but without being subject to being kind of edited out of the important messages that I'm trying to convey? How do I get my message across without the mess that comes with adhering to status quo and resisting change? So. To lead this discussion today, I sent Dr. Corrales three questions, and they like uh, were very kind in responding. But these are the three questions that we are going to go through today. Okay. Question one is: What examples have you seen of ineffective and effective framing for science education or research? Question two is: What is your knowledge surrounding framing a message in the context of what we do, meaning science education? And question three, what would you want to learn about question two, about how to frame a message for impact in science education? And so the way this is going to go is that I'm mostly going to ask Dr. Corrales for their perspectives on these things. And as the conversation goes, I have opinions too a bit, but I mostly just want to hear from Dr. Corrales. So. Ready. I'm definitely ready. Okay. <laughs> Starting first, what examples have you seen of, of ineffective and effective framing for science education or research? So when I first uh, started thinking about this question, uh, I had a really hard time thinking of, like, what is effective framing? Because I was just like, how do you even, even define that of, like, technically effective? Because there's what's effective, like, to me, and then there's what I notice more broadly is affected. And I think it like goes with what you mentioned in the beginning about like including empathy in our articles and the way that we write because we're writing about human experience. And I've noticed the same thing where it's uh, it seems like when I'm writing from a place of empathy, uh, it's not received well and like editors or whoever's reading it, they tell me to change it or to frame it in a different way. So it was like I had to definitely finding examples that I think personally are effective. Um, and then it brought up those feelings of tone policing and throttling of the published content, kind of like diluting the message in the name of effective framing um, and reaching sort of a wider audience. And so, yeah, I, when I was thinking about effective versus ineffective, we have kind of like these messages that are catering to those empowered and those are like deemed effective because they are getting through peer review or they're getting through this or that or they're approved by kind of the powers that be. Um, and then it's uh, research will ask for things like um, using more of like a capitalist perspective to justify doing certain things. So it's a little bit different than what you brought up, but I've noticed it's a lot of like, well, we want this to be equitable so we can have more people in science. We can have diverse perspectives to have uh, stronger innovations, more workers, put more people in the job market, that kind of justification for things 
But that's not how I think about it from my own personal values. So I almost wonder like how effective is it for me to come at it more from like, well, it's the right thing to do. These are people versus like, it's gonna help the workforce. It's gonna forward production and things like that. Um, and then also effective framing is hard because it depends on like your audience and it, are we catering to the general public, to researchers, to um, educators? And I feel like a lot of the time it, especially since we're publishing a lot of like academic articles, it sort of caters to other academics. And then we're actually not effectively framing for the people that we might want to direct our work towards. So I see effective framing in like places outside of formal kind of academic writing. So anytime I see like a cool infographic or something like that, that, that feels effective to me because it seems like more people will see it, things that aren't behind paywalls, stuff like that. And then mm-hmm. less effective sort of framing to me feels like when we're over jargony, when we are not being accessible to the reader but I don't know that that's necessarily the case to like other people. So that's sort of what I think about the first question. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I can resonate with almost every experience and phrase that you said. Um, (laughs) I know we wrote an equity paper together about how stoichiometry seemed to be, like if you didn't know stoichiometry for general chemistry one and two, you were just done for. Um, and if you didn't have a lot of pre-college experience with that topic, you were done for. And so we, we wrote this paper about that and we got reviews that were, well, to be fair, we got some good reviews and we got other reviews that were really helpful in improving the quality of the manuscript in other ways. But there were instances where I felt like we were being tone policed, where they wanted us to walk back the words of like, racial racial marginalization when we saw inequitable access to pre-college math prep for black people they wanted us to walk that phrasing back and just be like it's just different like it's it's not this big racial injustice it's just different and there were other examples of that and so it just it felt very like if you want to be published here you need to tone the justice talk down And that puts equity researchers in a really weird position because we're well rehearsed on power dynamics. And here we are encountering a power dynamic that is biased toward normalized perspectives or more Mm -hmm. frequent perspectives. And when we think about who is reviewing our work and what people and groups and perspectives that that tends to represent, it can be really challenging as someone who's intentionally trying to subvert that through their research to be told not to do that. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's not upholding your values mm-hmm. when you're framing it. And then it feels almost disingenuous in a way. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so I guess that leads me to, I wrote a question down where you were talking and it, there's an arrow from what is effective framing? And the question was, what does success look like for something like one of our papers? Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah. So I think like uh, the general idea of success and the thing that I kind of have been told is success with things like this is obviously 
how, how many times are you being cited? And um, how many people know about this thing? How many people are retweeting your tweet about it? Those kinds of things. And it's like, it's like clicks and very, like, how much engagement are you getting? But it's usually like from a, the rest of the research community. And I'm sitting over here like, that's cool and all, but I would love for another educator to read this and then say, this helped me do this in my class. And now my students are like this. And I just, that's what I would like to see. And that's how I would measure like my success is if I write something and that is actually practical and helpful to another person rather than just kind of, I'm building up my repertoire of papers and I've been cited X, Y, and Z number of times. And they're talked about in all these different places. Um, so if we're going by just the regular measures of success, then it would just be, it would be like clicks and, and that kind of thing. And then that goes with like, well, then, yeah, you want to use the framing that the editors may tell you to do or the framing that is generally accepted. But it's like my values don't necessarily align with that. So then it's like, of course, my framing would be different. I'm thinking of a different audience. Makes a lot of sense. So. You bring up a lot of really important topic threads, right? Because we're science education researchers and we're publishing in academic journals where the primary metric for success is how often it's cited by other researchers. So then are we writing the paper for other researchers to cite? Or, and I think this is more the intention of our paper, we were writing that paper so that science educators would look at it and go, okay, so here is some data that I can use to inform how I structure my chemistry course and my assessments. That would be the goal. But then there's just so many things about that medium of using academic journals that limits our impact in that exact space that we want to have impact. And so mm -hmm. some of those things, of course, include there's paywalls, science educators, I mean, how long was our paper? If it took more than five minutes to read, I don't really know a whole lot of science educators that have the time and the energy to unpack all of the statistics and the other things that we're kind of forced to write about in those journals. And ultimately, it just feels like we're just talking in a vacuum, <laughs> in a little echo chamber with all the other science education researchers who are studying equity specifically. Um, yeah. And when we're when what we're writing and where we're writing and who we're impacting isn't aligned, it just makes sense that framing becomes a really important idea. So my next question for you is, is how do you think we could, we wrote that paper, we advocated for the lessening of stoichiometry being so central as a cornerstone to chemistry because not everyone has pre-college mathematics or chemistry preparation with that topic. And so what you're assessing in part isn't just the student's understanding of stoichiometry, but it's also their access to that type of teaching prior to getting into college. Um, and so because of that, you know, inequity creation, why not back away from so much stoichiometry? So how would you reframe that message if you were trying to present it to researchers versus trying to present it to educators, regardless of the medium? Yeah. So presenting it to researchers, I would I would want it to direct it to people who are curriculum developers and are using the research to actually like create different in, like interventions. So I think like the paper that we wrote would be really useful for someone to cite if they're writing a grant 
where they're trying to, okay, so we know we need to do this. We have some evidence that we do need to change the way we assess. We need some money to use a research-informed approach to rewrite some assessments. So I would want to cater a paper to researchers who are doing that, because then I think we could actually reach uh, the audiences we want to reach. If we're talking directly to educators, um, then I would like to frame it more in a, in a calling-in sense, because I know for educators, um, it's really hard to change uh, the things that we do in the classroom, pressure from other people. The amount of time you have to prep is not enough. Um, and calling in of like, here are some things we could do that are actually accessible at this time with the very limited amount of time we have to do those things. So I know like in appendices sometimes we'll, um, uh, will like write example questions of like maybe you could pull something like this and so having that readily accessible for educators to like pull actual example questions if they want to try them out but it just seems like whenever we do write papers like this it's kind of like <laughs> we don't do either of those things or we try to do all of those things and then it doesn't come out the way that we want so it's like the message kind of gets muddled between the two yeah. I'm thinking back to that example that got us talking about this, where they tested the message under empathy, interdependence, and look at my ingenuity. And just looking at empathy and interdependence, because that was the lowest and the highest, let's go into the extremes. I guess the empathy frame of that paper would have been, our students deserve better than this especially our students with inequitable access to pre-college math preparation and chemistry. So because they deserve better than this as people who are trying to learn science, we as educators should do our best. And here's one way that we can serve that community better. Is that empathy or is that interdependence? Hmm. Yeah, how do they define interdependence in this? Is this kind of like a, when you first described it, it came off to me as like in, interest convergence. It came mm -hmm. off to me like like that. Like, well, this is also going to serve me too kind of thing when I saw the interdependence. So it wasn't really like a, it didn't seem like really like an interdependence in like a community standpoint, but more of a like right. what's in it for me standpoint. I agree with you. I think yeah. your take on it is accurate. And I don't know exactly how these were framed in the research that he was referring to, as I couldn't find where it was published. And this was just a, a short TED talk. Um, but I think it would be interesting to know how the constructs were defined. Let's go on the assumption that we have it right, that it isn't so much about interdependence and community or reciprocity. It's more of what do I get? So if we were to frame the question or how, how you say it, we we're framing the message of what do I get? then I guess we could have framed it as if you write your assessments this way, your class might be more equitable, which might look good <laughs> to your department. <laughs> uh, this feels so gross. Um, <laughs> you, you will be perceived by people as a, a better person and can brag about <laughs> your saviorism and how you're, I don't know. You can like, brag about you... your, 
you can share your uh, lower DFW rates compared to the other sections of the course. You can, um, hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, what's in it for the teacher besides like more work? Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. it's, uh, you'll get better um, like class evaluations, maybe. Yeah, from mm. a minority. So I don't know if they, you know, Right, because what if that comes at the cost of the majority of the class, and they don't like these more equitable assessments? And mm. oh, and you know, maybe these are some of the internal struggles that an educator goes through when they read something like our work. Like, what is in it for me? I'm busy. I'm doing my best, but you know, I've heard of the perspective of people are gonna. There's always gonna be a population of students that fail my class, and I do everything I can to give them resources so that they don't fail. But if they don't pursue them, that's their fault. And it just feels like a, that perspective is just grounded in, in some stress, some anxiety, yeah. some frustration with the general system at best. And at worst, it's genuinely harmful. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. Like, How do you make an interdependence argument for improving science education? I guess you could say if well, again, that, that's not reciprocity or community-based because that's where my brain goes. It's like, okay, well, yeah. obviously, more equitable assessments, more people will be able to pursue a career in STEM and we'll have diverse perspectives and opinions and our review process wouldn't be so freaking impossible when we're trying to advance equity work because their, their perspectives would be represented in the reviews. Yeah. So if I wanted to frame it for what's in it for me specifically, as the writer of that article, that's how I would frame it. But yeah, it's yeah. so maybe that's part of it, right? Maybe that's part of why equity related STEM education research can be a difficult path to take. Because when you're publishing research studies where majoritarian perspectives are used to review you and the success of that work is judged by how often people cite it, it might not reach the audience that you want to begin with. And yeah. then on top of that, to tie why we should make more equitable STEM courses into an interest convergence, that just doesn't sound like something that a, a critically informed scholar would even want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> then I guess the next question is, should we? Should we anyway? Should we put empathy aside and specifically frame our research studies so that they emphasize mm -hmm. what the reader has to gain from reading the work? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a question in, to what extent do we wanna work within the system and to what extent do we want to do something else entirely? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that Absolutely. is that is the constant struggle of my life. <laughs> is that? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's and this is something that I think everyone could appreciate in any career. Is that there are times or any any life walk really, there are times where your inherent values get called into question by what is accepted as the norm, and you have to decide to what extent will you play into that system? Especially if you're the, like one of the people who are trying to change it, <laughs> you have to really 
decide how much am I going to play into this so that I can play the game and how much Mm -hmm. am I going to play the game so that I can end the game and make a better one. Yeah, I don't have an answer there, but that's a cool thread that we've. <laughs> that's a great. It's a great thread with yeah, with no answer from me right now. I'm. That's my current just pondering. <laughs> no, if you but, have an answer to yeah. that question, and you're listening to this, and you go, "I know exactly how to answer this," please, please contact us. I'm going to put all of our handles in ways that you can contact <laughs> yeah. us on a screen or something or in a note. Please just like, <laughs> please contact us because we're lost on that. We want to know. We do. <laughs> the world wants to know. We want to highlight you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. What else can we talk about for question one? Examples of ineffective and effective framing. Okay. I've got a little bit more on that. Do you want to do that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have a story to share. Okay. I just started grad school, right? This is 2017. And I was offered a chance to go to a big conference almost right off the bat within a few months of me starting the program. Um, and so I applied and, and got in and the thing was going to happen in the, in the following summer. And I was really excited. So it's now it's 2018 and it's time to get on a plane with my boss, which was a really weird and cool experience. And you get to fly somewhere. I grew up poor, so that always feels like magic to me when I get to fly somewhere and I don't have to pay for it. And so we land and I get ready for my very first talk as a grad student. And my talk was deficit framed, meaning that I was talking about at-risk chemistry students instead of thinking about how the education system puts certain students at risk that makes sense mm-hmm. but if we can take me back to 2018 Vanessa I was framing it as, as at-risk students and up until that point the research that I had read was very much about predicting who would fail and who would succeed in chemistry courses mm-hmm. and as I was reading all of that literature it left me feeling annoyed because say you're an educator and I, I am and I have a class of 120 students and I can point to three and go you and you and you will absolutely fail this class. What good does that do to predict that? Yeah. Like, do I just tell them they're going to fail and tell them to just go ahead and drop the class and give up on your dreams? Like, what is what, what do I as an educator do with that? Do I pay extra close attention and throw every resource I have at them? What good does that do to predict them? And so I decided, well, you know what I would like to see in the research is where along the course content are these students performing differently than their peers? Where is it that it starts to deviate? Is it right away? Is it throughout the entire time? Is it at the end? Because if we can figure out where in the curriculum we're losing a lot of these students specifically, then we can do something. So all of those prediction studies were using things like math SAT score, And a lot of them talk about students in the bottom quartile, so like the bottom 25th percentile. I took those students and figured out that stoichiometry was where they performed the most negatively, where the most of the inequity was coming from. And I was presenting that. And I was like, it's stoichiometry that's causing a lot of inequity. And it's not causing it, but it's where we see a lot of this inequity. 
So let's do something about that. And that's how I kind of closed that talk. And the very first hand to go up was this uh, professor who was sitting like three rows back and his hand shoots up the moment I finished my talk. And I'm thinking like, yeah, this guy's excited. Let's change science education. This is going to be cool. And I, I nod at him to be like, yeah, ask your question. What's up? And he looks at me and sits back and goes, I just want to ask, when did we lose the power in our own classrooms to determine who will and will not succeed in science? What? And at the time, I was really confused by the question because I was like, power? We're not even talking about power. We're talking about assessments and science. And I didn't even know about power dynamics and had it even started my journey with critical theory to know how ironic that question was. And so I decided, I looked at my advisor and he was very um, calm and collected and was just like, go ahead and, and answer the question. You can do this, very supportive. And I decided to just look at the rest of the audience because people looked pissed. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, okay, it's not right for me to stand up here and argue with this person. I just started here. I'm a year into my career. This is my very first talk. So I decided to give the stage to the crowd. And I said, I can see a lot of people here are eager to respond to this question. Would anyone like to? And like 50 hands went up. It's <laughs> such a good move. Oh my gosh. Thanks. Thanks. Such, it, a, it was, such uh, a good educator. <laughs> the feedback I got later was you shouldn't have given the power away. But honestly, I didn't feel like it was mine to give. I was put in a position where I was like, this isn't what I wanted to talk about today. I don't see the connection, but maybe other people do because they're getting mad <laughs> and I can see it on their face. So let me give some of that power to them and let's have a discussion about it. You want to talk about power? Let's talk about power. So there was this woman in a red blazer who I just caught my eye. And so I let her respond and she led what ended up being like a 20 minute discussion going from people to people to people about basically like telling that guy very subtly that his power trip is coming from a place of supremacy and from meritocracy mm. and that he could take like many seats. <laughs> that was essentially what was being conveyed from a variety of perspectives in the room. And that was really encouraging for me as somebody yeah. who's, you know, a woman of color presenting this idea and for it to get that response. It was really nice to have so many people in the room who were not like, sharing the same exact idea even, but just supportive of the fact that his question was a little messed up. Yeah. So anyway. The, there were audience think, looking yeah. out for you. Yeah. No, I, that is, wow. I think it's so, it's like both frustrating because there are the people who see a new uh, scholar, maybe not like young age-wise, but young in their career, and um, they see a new scholar and they go, I'm going to haze them. I'm going to make this hard for you because you're new and you have to prove to me that you deserve to be here. And then there are the people that, like this person in the red blazer, who are like, you deserve to be here. You're on this stage. I am going to call you in here. I'm going to help you and I'm going to support you. And I just, that was, and honestly, that's amazing to hear that story because a lot of the time it's a lot more of the first person that you encounter and not yeah, a whole especially lot in of the other group of people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
yeah, yeah. I'm, that's an amazing experience that you had that much support and like community people people standing with you and you know helping you when this guy's kind of trying to deal derail what you were intending to like present you know yeah and to be fair i let him derail it a little but for me it felt like okay if this is a real problem that educators are feeling with responding to my work then we should chase this down mm-hmm. but it got me thinking a lot about framing that story just to tie it back in because the way that I framed that work was very, I thought I was being very objective. I was saying, you know, we're defining these students in a very specific way. We're not using any socially constructed identity labels, but we are using a socially constructed assessment, the SAT. Mm-hmm. And we're identifying this issue. And given that this measure looks at pre-college math, it only makes sense that these students are struggling potentially with the math in this topic. And if we are assessing chemistry, then what are we measuring here? If this is where the greatest inequity appears. And it was more of a, a question about like, you know, what is it that we're really assessing? That's, that was the heart of the work. And now I tend to frame my research a lot more about, you know, still the same idea of, of what are we really assessing here? But also beyond that, of what impact does that have? And I find that that room that was there in 2018 and the beauty of those hands shooting up, I think that room is still there today. But following 2020 and the polarization in general that everyone has been experiencing over hundreds of years, always, I don't know that framing my work that objective is really what I should have been doing. I really feel that maybe in that space that that was a good framing for the audience that I had, but I would have really preferred to frame it in empathy. So how do you frame to a group of scientists empathy? And what happens if that's not successful? And it's not that you don't want to be successful as a scientist, of course you do. You need to be if you're going to advance reform. But how do you do that without trading in your value system or trying to wash your own narrative? Yeah, that's where Mm -hmm. I'm at with all that. So question number two, what is your knowledge surrounding framing a message in the context of science education and science education reform? So my knowledge of framing is essentially, I, I feel like, when I was learning how to write uh, and learning how to write like academic articles, learning how to write for education research, when we talked about framing, it was more so about, well, what's like your theoretical framework? What's your conceptual framework? Mm. But I don't know that there was a whole lot of attention paid to how are you framing your argument? How are you framing the points you want to make? And I think I really struggled with that because that was a piece of sort of that, that hidden curriculum, kind of that hidden piece that I really didn't know how to do. And I don't think that it was like explicitly talked about like outside of just like picking your theory, which can a lot of time like be your value system and those things. But mm-hmm. yeah, the actual like framing of something. But what I've come to just from like experience is just, you know, what's your audience? Um, what stance are you taking? What's your value system? And then 
more recently thinking about how accessible is it? How accessible is the language? And so those are the pieces I think about when I think about framing your topic, your argument, whatever point you're trying to get across. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're thinking about framing, what I really liked about what you brought up is I used to notice, and I still do, if you were to type in equity right now into a science education journal, you might find a a great number of equity-related research that has no equity-related framework, like a theoretical Mm -hmm. framework. And by that, we mean something that has been developed over time in the literature where they're defining what the constructs mean. They're defining what equity means, what it looks like, how you can operationalize or measure it, what it doesn't mean, the boundaries around, you know, what it can be and and just all of that. It, It gives you grounding for what is equity, how do you measure it, and how do you analyze it or any construct, right? And so it always, you know, and to be fair, I wrote articles like that in the beginning too, where I'm writing about equity and assessment design, but I didn't use a framework about equity or assessment design. It was more just grounded in my own personal epistemology, my own perspective, my own philosophy. And I see that often. And it's odd because sometimes I'll include and structure a paper around a framework and I'll be asked to remove it because the argument is that it makes it more subjective if I use an equity framework. I find that to be really confusing because if you don't use a framework, you are literally relying on your own subjectivity versus at best is your subjective interpretation of a theoretical framework. Yeah. I find that really interesting. And I wanted to know if you can help me outline what these spaces look like. What is the theoretical framework space versus framing space look like in your mind? And how do you as a researcher separate those spaces or combine Mm -hmm. them? Yeah. I mean, I feel like they're not, they're almost like a Venn diagram. They sort of inform each other, but are not exactly the same thing. Like the value, like sort of your value system and the stance that you're taking. I feel like your theoretical or conceptual framework kind of informs that. But then you're also thinking about your audience and who's reading it and that kind of intent, which may not necessarily come from the frame, like the theoretical framework. Um, And then the style of writing and those sort of like when you're talking about the, um, yeah, those approaches, different approaches, empathy approach, interconnected approach. Like, I think it's like informed, but it's not the same thing as your theoretical framework. Mm. Yeah, it's hard to, because your theoretical framework doesn't come until after you've written an entire introduction. And you're sort of framing the argument and the points that you're going to make in the introduction. And so, which I find really hard to do a lot of the time because then I need need some things from my theory to make it make sense. So yeah, there's part of it that goes beyond just your theoretical framework, I think. That makes sense. For me, it's like these two... (laughs) if you can, these two lenses that are overlapping and I have my hands in front of my face, one hand in a circle and the other hand in a circle for anyone who's only listening. (laughs) 
And I'm swinging them out and apart, and then I'm bringing them back together to introduce this idea that when I first started doing this type of research, I wasn't aware that frameworks even existed to talk about equity. So I did solely rely on my own value system. And so in that case, the Venn diagram was a circle, but that was only because I didn't know that frameworks existed. And so I wrote the study out of that. And then as I learned about what the frameworks are for that space, and I realized how they gelled with my own value system, it allowed me the chance to question a lot of my value system and to deconstruct it and look at it from different angles and go, well, do I agree with that definition of equity? What about this one? What about that one? And just kind of going through the literature and figuring out, okay, well, this one, I agree with this, this, and this, and this one doesn't make sense to me based on these experiences or these data. And just moving through all of those spaces until I had enough sense of what my value system actually was and how it related to the theoretical framework. And now I would say that they're much more of an overlapped Venn diagram, not necessarily a circle again. My value system does differentiate a little bit from these frameworks, but I would say instead of being not even a thought, that the framework is the primary lens that I choose to look through when I'm writing that research study. Because if I ground it in my own perspective, there's a lot of things that I can miss and I don't want to. Granted, when you choose a specific lens to look through, there's a lot of the picture that you still might miss, but yeah. at least you know, you're able to align it over time with multiple studies and you can mm-hmm. all agree that you're studying the same thing. <laughs> that, that gives you some progress. Because like the people who are studying active learning, ourselves included at different points in our careers, those people who are studying those, those types of pedagogies, I have yet to see almost anyone agree on what active learning is. <laughs> and it's hard. <laughs> yeah. How do you study, how do you research something? How do you do a meta-analysis or an analysis of analyses when you're not sure if everyone's defining this the same way? It's, mm-hmm. it's wild. Yeah. All right. Exploring more about your knowledge of framing, how do you go about framing your argument uh, in different spaces? Mm-hmm. So I do equity research. I also do like more content focused education research. So I'm not necessarily pulling explicitly from a critical lens, but I feel like it infuses itself regardless because I'm going to look at a framework and be critical of it to make sure it aligns with like a, like different perspectives. So what was I saying about this? So when I'm thinking of framing an argument where I'm trying to talk about something that's like largely like chemistry content based, um, <laughs> like I'm not very good at it but uh, the way that I framed like a couple of my more recent articles um, is actually I think I framed it more in the methods are interesting and so when I was framing it I wanted to highlight some interesting like and different ways that I went about using these different research methods and so that was kind of like my focus for those and so then it was more catered towards researchers who may be interested 
Um, and showing, uh, showing basically, here's how I informed my methods. Um, I have a more critical lens that informs my method, so it does change a little bit of how I see the data. It changes a little bit of how I carried out these investigations. Um, and so then I frame that more towards researchers because it kind of felt like the things that I was doing, uh, an educator doesn't want to read that. And I don't want to make an educator read that because it's not like necessarily practical unless they're trying to do some eye tracking research for some reason, <laughs> which is entirely yeah. possible. But it's just kind of like that one was much more like here's for researchers. Um, and then there's another subset of that work that was more towards educators where I actually crafted um, example questions based on what I learned from the qualitative interviews. And so that one was a little bit more like framed from a practitioner focused perspective. So I kind of started to pick like what piece of this is interesting and who's gonna find it interesting. And then I sort of went from there. Love that. Yeah. I've gone through a similar evolution in my science education research writing career. And what caused it funnily enough funny enough is doing social media and learning more about that i i was doing more social media and i realized that people don't really care when you're like hey we published this paper come check it out um people yeah. are like yeah good for you and like your friends will be like heck yeah go we're so proud of you but general society doesn't care and that's fair because it's you know it's an accomplishment for me so why would you care like i get that and as I've been studying, you know, how can I get a message to propagate beyond just my friends group and for it to be useful? And a lot of people have pointed me to this idea that we all start in this sort of problem state where there's something we're trying to achieve and, and we're encountering obstacles and there's this place on the other side of all that that we want to be. And if you can frame your work or your communications in accordance with that, it's likely to resonate with more people. And so when I'm thinking of framing nowadays, you know, just to reflect what you're talking about, about who the audience is and why you're writing it and how it connects with them. And thinking back to our initial discussion about empathy versus this like interdependence, this kind of selfish interdependence, <laughs> I think that reflects it a lot where it seems to be just kind of human nature to look for things that are helpful to us and what we need. And so if you were to frame an equity study, for example, instead of framing it with dire messaging, where if we don't do this, we are bad people. We are unjust and we are cruel people and we don't want these students to succeed. Framing it that way, I can see getting a really negative response because now you're, you're, these people who work so hard on their courses are getting that threatened and they're being called bad. And more than anything, as social animals, we don't want to be bad and we don't want to be left out until we have been called that too many times. <laughs> and then we decide, sure, I'll be bad. <laughs> but really, I think a lot of us just, we don't want to be hated. We don't want to be ignored. We, we want to make a difference and we want things to be better. So dire messaging might not work, right? And then if we were able to to take a little bit of empathy for the audience member for a moment and merge that with that kind of selfish interdependence of what do you get? 
well, if I'm framing this as the problem state is I'm an educator and that's a problem in itself <laughs> for lots of reasons, but I have many, many problems. <laughs> anyway, you know, if we were to take it up the framework of I'm an educator and I have the problem of, I want my courses to be more equitable. I specifically am looking for resources to achieve that. And we frame our research of, okay, if that's what you want, this is what the data is suggesting, and this is how you can do it, one, two, three. If we can frame our work that way, then we are achieving that goal of interdependence um, in the way that I think was described in that TEDx talk. And so I wouldn't say that this was my knowledge about framing, but this is what I've been learning, mostly from studying how social media works, oddly enough. What do you think of that? Yeah. Hmm. I have to think about this. I think it kind of comes down to something that when I was writing about my knowledge surrounding framing is the fact that we have this traditional way that we frame academic research that's just inaccessible. And so when you're jumping into kind of the social media world and seeing how, like, how do we actually get people to click stuff and look at stuff and actually read it? Um, it looks nothing like anything that we've been told. And so it's just <laughs> right. this huge like par- paradigm shift of like, okay, so this is probably a big reason why um, people are not looking at our stuff. And it like totally makes sense. It's like as soon as somebody makes an infographic or they put out a magazine article or an editorial or they make a video or they make a podcast or literally anything else, I'm like more interested in wanting to look at it uh, <laughs> then um, I can only read so many academic articles in a day before my brain turns off. Um, even when it's my special interest, I still, it's like, there's a level <laughs> yeah. that I kind of am like, all right, I need a break. So <laughs> I love that. that. What sense. immediately, yeah, what immediately came to mind for me was, have you seen those, um, social media content where it's like, we're academics, we yeah. do blah, blah, blah. Do you? <laughs> Do you want to play of that game with we me do and just go back and forth? <laughs> yeah. Is that how it goes? You do go, it. we're academics. Of course we, and then you insert a ridiculous thing that academics do. Is that how that goes? Okay. <laughs> I do you want so, to try yeah. it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. It. Okay. <laughs> we're academics. Of course we expect you to spend 12 hours reading our research article and disentangling all the jargon. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> we're academics. Of course we read your article. We're academics. We really appreciate the feedback from reviewer too. Thank you. This is a good one. We're academics. We value your work-life balance, but also we don't change your deadlines. <laughs> Sorry, that was so funny. Oh, academics and work-life balance. I can't wait to talk about that more. Let me see. Okay, oh, what are some one. other academic writing roles? We're academics. We buried everything that was relevant to you in the supplemental. Oh my god, that one hurts me because it's so true. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I have to think of another one. Okay. We're academics. We require you to write an abstract, but it doesn't actually tell you anything about the article. <laughs> I love that. We're academics. We want you to read our research, but only if you have access through the paywall. Hmm. Literally. Ooh, I got another one. Go We're away. academics. Oh, hold on, hold on. I gotta actually think about mine for a second. Okay, ready? 
We're academics. W-L-T-U-A. We love to use acronyms. That's <laughs> such a good one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we do. Uh, we love an acronym. <laughs> We're academics. We only know how to structure our arguments using IMRAD. Introduction, method, results, and discussion. There's no way that any of this content fits in that one. Yeah, yeah, do okay. it. We're academics. We have two titles, the fun one and the technically correct one. <laughs> We're academics. We like to answer our own questions. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Let's see. We're academics. We strive to be concise, but somehow write 40-page manuscripts. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What are the rules for academic writing, and how are they completely different from social media? Our visuals are so, and this is something that's always been a, a thing for me because I love graphic design, but the mm -hmm. visuals are so sparing and it's almost encouraged you to, to not have any visuals. Like if you write a paper that's just text and tables, people really like, <laughs> the reviewers seem to really love that. I don't get that. <sighs> yeah, me neither. Because I feel like I end up adding more figures to get my point across because it's just like, I don't know having a figure that shows your conceptual framework is just going to do a whole lot more for my brain than a block of text explaining it. That's what I think. Like, that's the thing with social yeah. media is that, like, visual is king, right? If you can make it visual, you're doing great. But in academia, it doesn't seem to be like that. And obviously, social media being concise and to the point and helpful is mm -hmm. the goal, you know? Yeah, and then it seems like in framing, it's like you're still being super verbose. <laughs> and then you're still like framing and it all the time like sort of dilutes your message anyway. Even though even though the manuscript is still like 20, 30 pages long, it still doesn't convey what maybe you actually wanted to convey. I don't know. With the graphic design stuff, it really makes me think I get why there's not enough graphic design and that kind of like design of figures because we're already doing too many things at once and having to learn how to like make interesting graphics is a whole other like skill but it kind of just goes back to the fact that like we as academics aren't very good at like delegating at sharing like sharing sharing projects and getting help when you know you're not the person that necessarily knows enough to do something I just see all the time and I run into it too is like I always feel like I don't have enough help um and I would love to have more help but it's just like there's not enough I don't know there's not enough like connection between different researchers and people in different spheres that you can sort of have that community built project it's usually one person's leading the project you have maybe a couple people helping you hopefully uh, but generally like the first author's doing most of it and then that's just it's so much and it would be cool to have like oh I have a uh, someone who's interested in graphic design who's doing this part and I have someone who's interested in this part and it just feels like with a lot of like teams there isn't like a team it's just like one person with maybe a couple of helpers to help a little yeah it does feel like it's too much to do sometimes yeah and it's, it throws into question like why do we do so much just to convey our work 
think of how productive we could be if conveying our work was a little bit less intense, if it was like the way that I wanted to present the conference paper, you know, it's just being like, okay, if you are someone who's trying to make your course more equitable, here's some suggestions. And this is the data that if you implement this, you might see this in your class and just make it like that. Suggestion one, suggestion two, suggestion three, and then call it a day. If we could write our articles that way and still have well-referenced works and data and really highlight the data instead of our interpretations and perspectives in the literature review and just all, it's just, mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, if you're doing an academic writing, like a book or an article, maybe it's supposed to be long and hard to understand and full of jargon and stats tables and maybe, but it seems like with science educators, we're scientists, but we're also trying to impact a real human system. Mm -hmm. And doing that through a research article is hard to do. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes out, at least I know in our field, it came about as like trying to establish ChemEd as this, um, as a legitimate science. And I hear that from yeah. a lot of people who've been in the field for a long time. Of like, we had to work really hard to establish ourselves. And like, I get that. And it's like, I never want to discount that hard work, but I think it has put yeah. us into a place as a field that we are now so, in trying to be in with like the hard sciences kind of academic community, it's pushed us so far away from like the our, our audience that we could actually be impactful to and work with and be in community with, so. Yeah, and so then that—that's our. Of course, our framing doesn't match that anymore. We're so far away. Yeah, we wanted to be cited, and we wanted to be included in departments. And you know, maybe there's other perspectives in that that I couldn't encapsulate because I wasn't alive during that time when all of this was starting. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but I can say from my experience with it all, it's great that these departments exist. It would mm -hmm. be really nice if instead of trying to shoehorn our way into a chemistry department, wherever we ended up in the university system, that our work, the impact of our work was aligned with what we want in terms of our research. If mm -hmm. the impact of our research is supposed to be serving practitioners, then I feel like we've missed the mark trying so hard to get funding and be included in these STEM departments. And how do we fix that? How do we not necessarily destabilize our whole career program, but how do we walk that back a little bit and go, okay, it's great that we want to write research articles and get funding. Obviously that's essential. Yeah. And those two things are very hard to pull apart right now, but maybe we should be finding and looking for other ways to frame our work, to get our work out there, to actually make it impactful. Because if we're writing these studies and we're getting lots of citations, we get lots of grant yeah. funding, cool. But where's the impact on science education specifically? How can we make sure that that piece is still honored? Yeah. All right, last question. What do you want to learn about framing in science education to advance reform? So I want to learn more about, and I think this was like one of our big questions from the beginning is, how do we subvert the traditional norms in academic writing while we're still like navigating and trying to get through the peer review process? <laughs> how much can we 
stay true to ourselves and have our work be read. <laughs> and oh. yeah. And just how can we frame something using um, critical theories and sort of call people in, but also provide critique? Uh, because I find that I've really struggled with that, both like in publishing, but also in just like talking to people. Um, and maybe not like struggled with it, but even in using things like a compliment sandwich, like a good thing, a critique, a good thing, it still may not necessarily land. Um, and I have, yeah, gotten in some real big trouble uh, for, for doing that, for trying to frame things in a way that I think is going to be well received and it still isn't. And so I don't know, just like how, how do we do that? And then how to share, I want to learn more about like framing and sharing ideas outside of standard academic channels and how that framing is different. So even what you talked about with like how you're framing things for social media is going to be different. I want to learn like those like different things, like how can we share our work and share information outside of like what we are, what we were taught was the thing to do. I love that. Yeah. I'd like to learn all those things and I'd like to know sort of what challenges do people encounter when an argument is being framed to them? You know, like you hear X topic or argument, what's going through your mind? What is the psychology of how closely you identify with that topic and how that makes you react to hear positive or negative things about it? And specifically, like, how do you frame something so that you can inspire support for that reform, for that change, for that idea without having to, like you said, water yourself down, without having to limit yourself in that way? Or, or is it even reasonable or rational to ask us to do that? Mm -hmm. How can we frame things in our research so that they're helpful to educators? but will still get published, like you said, that are helpful for reforming equitable systems in science education, but will still get published. <laughs> like, you know, or maybe do we even need publishing? Yeah. Do we it's need a good to, question to right not there. worry about that? You know, yeah. do we need to outgrow publishing? Is probably another way to think about it. I love All that. Right. Can that be <laughs> like the title of something? <laughs> Can we outgrow this? <laughs> How do we, we outgrow publishing? <laughs> it's so good. I love that. Thank you for listening to this, our very first episode of The Collective Podcast. We're excited for this new project, and our very next topic will be navigating non-traditional careers in STEM. It should be a fascinating discussion, and we are actively looking for people to be co-hosts on the show. Make sure that you subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss future topics and updates. Have a great day.